presidents tonight. I think I'll only talk about one, because I have three of them that I've spent a great deal of time studying. And, I, and I'm not through, you just can't uh, wear out enough books about some of these people. There's always something new there to add that goes, oh, click, that makes sense. And um, I'm not gonna talk about Lyndon Johnson, so I'll tell you about him first. <laughs> Only, no, but I won't, uh, really. Uh, but the idea is that um, uh, Every chance I get to go to Austin, I go to the Johnson Library, and you can get all sorts of stuff in a presidential library. It's amazing what they have. And, uh, and then I go to the ranch, and I go to the place where he was born, and I do this kind of over and over, and I always learn something new, and something that makes him a little bit more kind of living to me, because um, it wasn't that I paid that much attention to when he, when he was president. I was kind of busy doing other stuff. And, um, and tonight I'm gonna talk about um, one president who was accidental president, just like Johnson was accidental president. And, um, and there was another one, Richard Nixon was really an accidental president. Everything he did didn't get him elected president until um, he finally got in. It looked like his life was over, just like Lyndon Johnson's life was over. They had these desires to be president. There was no way it was going to happen, and bing, they were. And that's uh, about the other president. And the reason I focus in on these is because they did things that were very significant to the state of Israel. And because they did positive things that way, our nation got blessed. Because nations are judged. You can look it up in Joel 3, 1 and 2. Nations are judged in how they treat the Jews and how they treat the state of Israel. And, and that's a fact. And you can look at history and you can see not only presidents, but when kings and others have turned against Israel, that's been the end of their kingdom. And... Um, so it's very important for us, for our children, for our grandchildren, that when uh, this next election comes along, that we're involved to the, uh, to the greatest extent that we can. Um, because we can't just sit back as the church has done um, for a long time now and not be involved. Just think, oh, politics is dirty. So um, anyway, that's kind of an introduction. And the reason I'm focusing in on this gentleman this time is because he really was significant and um whoops okay isn't that clever i learned how to do that but uh, <laughs> this is the basic verse of scripture god said to abram i'm going to make you a great nation i'm going to bless those who bless you and whoever curses you i will curse and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, God either meant what he was saying or he was pulling our leg. And I don't think he was doing that. I've based my life on this verse to be a blessing to Abraham's descendants. And, um, and in many ways, our nation has been that. The United States 
has been a refuge for the Jews unlike any other nation in history. Throughout Europe, there were always kings who would invite the Jews in, they'd straighten out things financially, and then they'd turn on them, take all their wealth and drive them out or kill them or do things like that. Now, the United States is the one nation in history that has been a place of refuge for the Jews. Yeah, there's been anti-Semitism, there's been a few little things like that, but nothing like what has been done to them throughout the world. And God has blessed us for that. Um, but that doesn't mean that things will always stay the same. How do you curse Israel? That's what... Uh, a question came to my mind. Okay, I know. I think I know how to be a blessing to someone and so forth. And cursing always sounded to me like cussing. So I thought it was saying bad words about Israel. I remember one night um, we were in bed and I feel this tugging on my arm. And I look and there's my little Marine. He was about five or six years old. He's still a, well, he's not such a little Marine anymore. He's been in there 27 years now. But um, he's, his name's Luke, and he's tugging. I said, Luke, what's the matter? He says, can't sleep, Dad. I said, why? He says, well, Chris and I were out in the woods today, and we were practicing cussing. <laughs> he said, Dad, I was out there saying bad words, you know. <laughs> I said, okay, Luke. <laughs> I mean, he's probably heard him again sometime in his Marine Corps career, but <laughs> this, this was a start. <laughs> and, and I said, okay, we'll pray about it and all that stuff, and then you go on to sleep. So cursing and cussing always sounded the same to me. And I figured, well, if God said, if you curse Abraham and his descendants, if you curse the Jews, that's cussing them, that's swearing at them, that's doing that kind of stuff. Till I looked it up in Scripture. And that word for curse is that word right up there. Anybody want to read it? <laughs> Galal. Very good. Very, your Hebrew's good. Galal. What's it mean? Well, it doesn't mean cussing. It means to treat with contempt. It means to slight someone. It means to purposely ignore. I remember uh, some years ago, I had my aunt in the car, and she was a crusty old lady and um, we were uh, in in a neighborhood where she was living and um, we're driving down the road and my mom was there too and I and I saw something had never been in our town before it was a bagel shop and I said whoa let's go in and get some bagels and my aunt goes no there might be Jews in there <laughs> and I'll tell you what it was like sticking a knife in me because God had really changed my heart. I just, by that time, I really had a, a love for Jews and things Jewish and all that. And for her to say, no, there might be Jews in there, that's what cursing is. That is to ignore, that's to spend your life avoiding places where Jews might be for whatever reason. It's turning your back on someone. And it means to disesteem. That's disesteem something that God has esteemed. God chose them as his chosen people for a purpose. And, you know, it can be like Tevia in Fiddler on the Roof. Yes, I know we're the chosen people, but couldn't he have chosen somebody else for a while? <laughs> 
And Jews will make light of that. But inwardly in their heart, they know there is something different, that God did choose them for a reason. And so we can curse them by turning our back on them or not going to places where they are or doing, you know, this shirt is an example. I'm not trying to sell shirts here. But wait, <laughs> you get two. <laughs> Somebody gave me a shirt like this out in Texas. And uh, it wasn't, I fancied it up a little bit since then because she didn't make any more. And, but I was wearing this shirt and people start coming up to me. And I, I've never had a shirt that people reacted to. And people would come up and go, yeah, right on. And they go on, and I didn't know what they were talking about. And this happened numerous times. I finally realized it says pro, I mean, I knew it said pro-Israel, but people would come out of the bushes and go, yes. Then, as a result of that, I started wearing it all the time. My wife says, yeah, can't you get another shirt? <laughs> no, I love it because it's a witness. But Jews start coming up, and they go, are you really pro-Israel? Say, yes, I am. And, and then are the people that come up and say, yeah, way to go, right on. I ask them, why? Why do you feel that way? Some will say, oh, because, you know, they're always being picked on by all the Arabs. Or the answer I really like is because God's word says we ought to be pro-Israel. And answers like that. I've never had anything that is such a witness without ever having to open my mouth um, and say those kind of things. What reminded me of this, I was in Chicago, and I was in a Starbucks with a friend of mine, and he usually meets a guy there, and they have a Bible study. And he says, you know, these are all Jews come in here, and there's one Jewish doctor, always comes over and wants to know what we're studying. And he said, oh, there he is now. And this guy walked in, and I said, well, I'm going to the bathroom. And I walked past him, and I could see his eyes go like this about that shirt. And so when I came back out, I walked past way, halfway past him, and I turned back on him. <laughs> and I said, you like this shirt? He says, yeah, I love that shirt. I said, sit right here. I got one in the car. And I went to the car, and I brought it and gave it to him. It turns out he was some multimillionaire um, plastic surgeon or something. He jumped up and he went all around that Starbucks to all his friends. See this? See you, you liberal Jews? You ought to be pro-Israel. And look what I got. And I never saw a guy so happy with a little shirt. And then he came and sat with us for about an hour, and we talked about things scriptural. And... Um, I mean, he was like a little kid in the candy store with his new shirt. It was really a witness that opened so many doors. Um, and that's a blessing to the Jews. We had, uh, we had one lady kept walking by our table. We were in a pizza place, and she finally stopped, and she said, Are you really in favor of Israel? I said, yeah. She said, We're from Israel. We're on vacation. We didn't think anybody stood with Israel. You know? Wow, that was neat. Okay, anyway, but you get two, you know? <laughs> okay, how do you curse Israel? Well, that's how you curse them. You ignore them. You do those kind of things. To not teach in a church, to not teach the biblical truth about Israel is to disesteem, and that's cursing, Abraham's descendants as well as God's plan and purposes for them and for Israel. The Bible is so full of promises for Israel and history of Israel and everything else, and I can guarantee you there's many churches where it's never spoken about. 
I grew up in one of those churches. I don't think I ever heard a sermon about modern-day Israel at all. And I paid attention once in a while during the <laughs> whether or not it's done on purpose or inadvertently, it's still a curse. Churches should be talking about Israel all the time. Look, what a blessing that is to me to see an Israeli flag over there with the cross and the American flag and the Christian flag. That says this church stands for something that's positive. That in itself, just having that, if, if Jews walked in here today and they sat down and they saw the Israeli flag over there, they would be blessed. That is bringing a blessing uh, to them. To disesteem Israel or to ignore the plight of the Jewish nation or people is to curse them. And that cursing brings a curse according to Genesis 12.3. By what standards are nations judged by God? That's the question I want asked at one of these debates. Ask those presidential candidates who want to sit in the most powerful seat in the world, does God judge nations? Does You know, I'd love to see Trump dance around that one. <laughs> by what standards are nations judged by God? Nations have been, they are, and they will be judged by how they treat Israel and the Jewish people. The Bible teaches that. History teaches that. For nearly 40 years, I've read everything I could about nations and kingdoms and how they treated the Jews. Always, when they treated the Jews right, they were blessed. Then they turned on them. Almost always, they turned on them, and that was pretty much the end of those kingdoms. Let's talk about... A kingdom almost. We had a president who was elected four times. Now, he didn't serve out that fourth time, but he was president 12 years, and then, um, you know, and then he ran again. Was Some people thought he was president for life, Franklin Roosevelt. Now, Bibi Netanyahu's father uh, just died about a year or two ago. He was, I think, 102 years old. And his name was Benzion Netanyahu. Benzion means the son of Zion. And um, he was a world-class historian, extremely well-known in his field, and was a prolific writer. Many of the things that he wrote never were published until after his death. And... He was very involved. He came to the United States um, in the 30s. He was here off and on doing things, working with the Jewish community, and then World War II started. And he was very much involved in trying to raise the issue of Jews being killed in Europe, um, something that most people in the United States didn't know, had no idea about. Even Eisenhower had no idea of the extent of the Holocaust that was going on behind the battle lines. But um, Benzion Netanyahu, by the way, I'll tell you a quick story about him. Um, a good friend of ours is the uh, former ambassador from Israel to the United States. And his name is Yoram, Yoram Edinger. And Yoram told me this about Benzion Netanyahu, who lived near him in Jerusalem. And on his 100th or 101st birthday or something, Yoram went over uh, to his apartment. And um, so he came in, and Benzion, he, 
he told me, he said, when Benzion was 102, his mind was just as sharp as it could be. He said he moved real slow, but just as sharp as could be. So when Yoram comes into the apartment, Benzion looks at him and he says, Yoram, you're still jogging? That'll kill you. <laughs> and so he said, so Benzion, what's the secret to your longevity? And he said, the secret to my longevity is I sleep until I wake up. <laughs> and he says, what are you talking about? What, I mean, what is that? He says, when I was a boy in Russia, my mother would not wake me up. When I woke up, she'd take me to school. The school teacher says, you can't do this. She says, this is my child. I'm raising him the way I want to raise him. Don't you tell me something. So he said, all of his life... He would sleep until he woke up. He was a professor in the United States, and he said, I never scheduled a class till afternoon because I never knew how late I'd be up, and I'm sleeping till I wake up. And he had a lot of stories like that. And when I heard that story a few years ago, I thought, wow, there's something to that. Since that time, I've only awakened to an alarm clock, I think, twice. And I realized, whoa, it shocks your body. You know, it wakes you up like that. Now, there's no extra charge for that. <laughs> but I thought it was a wonderful thing. Anyway, the point is, the reason I'm talking about this is Benzione wrote things um, in the 30s and in the 40s that never got published. And one of the things was they were trying, he and some other uh, fellow Jews, fellow Israelis who were here, were trying to alert this nation to the fact that Jews were being killed in Europe. They didn't know the extent of it. They thought at least by the thousands. They didn't know it was by the millions. And they would put ads in the paper, but it usually get buried. By the way, the New York Times, which was owned by Jews, buried those stories. And um, the New York Times led the country. If the New York Times thought a story was important, every newspaper in the United States picked it up. And for some reason, and there's reasons for it, they buried every little story that came out about Jews being killed in Europe. Sometimes they didn't call them Jews. They, talk, they called them Hungarians or they called them something else. And it was usually back on page 23, a little item. If they had publicized what they knew was going on, it would have put pressure on Roosevelt. It would have put pressure on the government, but it didn't happen. Now, one of the things that they did, this, is, this came out in 1944, one of the people that was in the government, in the U.S. government, who was Jewish, who was attempting to get in to talk to Roosevelt and saying, look, Jews are being killed by the thousands. Enough Jews escaped from the concentration camps and even from the death camps, and they would come back sometimes to their hometown. Um, Elie Wiesel, who is still alive today, who wrote Night and wrote many, probably the most 
the greatest Jewish writer who's alive today, Elie Wiesel said that some Jews from their town had escaped from one of the camps and came back to the town to warn the Jews. And they, he said, they're killing the Jews by the hundreds. You know, you, you've got to get out now. Don't wait for the Nazis to come. And they go, oh, Meyer, Meyer, you've lost your mind. Quit saying those things. You're scaring the community. You're scaring the children. Don't say that stuff. Well, eventually they were all taken away. There were, though, uh, there were enough who got out and they had enough credibility that they put together a study showing that Hitler was doing what he said he was going to do in Mein Kampf, and he was killing Jews by the thousands, maybe the hundreds of thousands. They didn't know at that time that he'd already killed about a million and a half, but nobody could assemble that. And there was a report that was made that actually got all the way to Roosevelt, and it was on his desk to read exactly what was going on. Now, the reason I say all this is just to give you a little background of what happened. So this member of his um, staff, of his cabinet actually, said that Roosevelt was only superficially sympathetic to the suffering of European Jewry. It's impossible, he wrote, to educate the president because he'll only let you see him once every six months for 30 minutes, and he spends the first 10 minutes chatting and telling stories. And it usually wasn't the first 10 minutes. It was more like the first 28 minutes. Oh, and he'd start with these stories and everything else, and then he would say, it was so great you coming in. I know exactly what you want. Don't worry about it. It's taken care of. Never heard, he didn't want to hear anything about the Jews. FDR used Jews if they served some purpose that he needed. Talked about Samuel Rosenman was his speechwriter. Henry Morgenthau Jr., you may know the name Morgenthau. It uh, was his son, was the DA in, uh, later in uh, New York. I mean, they were very famous uh, in law and in politics. Morgenthau Jr. was the Secretary of the Treasury. Only a certain kind of Jew could reach that position in Roosevelt's administration. It was the kind of Jew who would not talk about Jewish issues to the president or Jewish problems. FDR was the ultimate politician. He knew where the votes were, and really everything revolved around that. He knew he had the Jewish vote out of New York um, uh, in his back pocket. The Orthodox vote, whether they voted or not, he didn't even care. They were such a minor group, it pay, he paid no attention to them. Roosevelt told his secretary of the treasury, Morgenthau, and along with the Catholic appointee, he said, you know, this is a Protestant country, and the Catholics and Jews are here under sufferance. We suffer you being here. Um, it's unbelievable if something like that would have gotten out Today's in today's age, of course, nothing like this saw the light of day. And the FDR bluntly told them, it's up to you to go along with anything I want. You, and that's exactly how he operated. 
if somehow he didn't like the way you looked one day, within a week or two you're fired or you'll never get in to see him again. And um, he, he ran the show like he would live forever. He changed vice presidents like he changed his underwear or his socks. Okay, Jack Garner was his vice president. He got rid of him. Uh, Henry Wallace was his vice president. And then it came along to get another vice president. He picked some guy he didn't even know named Harry Truman. Um, we'll get to that in a moment. But something happened on October the 6th, 1943. They were in the middle of World War II. There was still a year and a half to go. By this time, probably a million and a half, maybe two million Jews were already dead. What he could have done at this time could have saved the lives of three and a half to four million Jews. These were Orthodox rabbis who came from Brooklyn. And this was a very insular community. Most of these rabbis spoke Yiddish. Most of them had come from Europe. Their congregations all spoke Yiddish. They li- if you go to Brooklyn today, there's still sections of Brooklyn where all you're going to hear is Yiddish. Okay? You know what Yiddish is? <coughs> it was a little bit of Hebrew. It was a little bit of Polish. It was a little bit of German. It was frankly a very beautiful language that the Jews made up. Now, they wrote it using Hebrew letters, but it wasn't Hebrew. And this evolved over hundreds of years in Europe, and this, is, this was their language. Why? Basically, so the Gentiles at first couldn't really understand what they were saying. They had their own little secret language. And, uh, and the Jews had another language as well in, um, in Greece and in more of the Mediterranean countries. It was called Ladino. Hebrew language had disappeared from the street. Nobody was speaking Hebrew. Hebrew was in the scriptures. And the religious Jews said Hebrew is too holy a language to be spoken on the streets. You could read it in the scriptures, but you're not going to speak it. So it had died out. But there was a man named Eliezer ben Yehuda who said, if we're ever going to have a Jewish nation again, we need our own language. And they thought, this guy is a wacko. He was so focused on doing this that all of his life was designed to revive a language that was dead. Today, there are millions of people speaking a revived language. In history, I don't know of another one where it came back from the dead. It is a miracle and, uh, and the Bible alludes to that as well. Well, anyway, these rabbis came from Brooklyn. They spoke Yiddish. Something was happening in their congregation. Starting in the late, th- like, 39 and early 40s, everybody in their congregation got a letter or a postcard from their relatives in Poland and in Germany. And basically it said, we are being moved to the east, we'll be working there, we'll write when we get there, and they never heard from them again. Enough stories had leaked out that they were killing Jews. They tried to publicize this, and it just wasn't working. Um, Because then these rabbis decided if we could get to President Roosevelt 
and we could look him in the eye. We know what a great man Roosevelt is. Uh, the Jews voted for him 99.9%. And, and a lot of people in the United States, they almost thought he was messianic. He was the leader. He was the president they only knew. He'd been there forever. And these rabbis decided, if we can get to Washington, talk to Roosevelt, look him in the eye, explain to him that Jews are being murdered, and all he's got to do is pick up the phone, call over to the brand-new Pentagon, Tell General Marshall, who's running the war, stop bombing the ball bearing factories for one week and bomb all of the railroads going into Auschwitz. By the way, Roosevelt knew. We knew because I've seen the aerial photographs. You can see them if you go to Israel. U.S. aerial photographs of the death camps. You could see people lined up going into where the stoves were, where they were going to be burned. It's all there. It was known. But they were trying to get the... Well, anyway, later on, whenever inquiries would come, why aren't we doing something to stop that? The question, the answer always was, as soon as the war is over, we can take care of that. We, can, we have to finish the war first. We can't be diverted from those ends. It sounded like a good answer because nobody knew how much they really knew. Well, anyway, these rabbis came, and there was great pressure for them not to come. And the pressure was coming from other Jews because they said, you're an embarrassment to us. You look like something out of the ghetto in Europe. This is 1943. We're modern. We can get to Roosevelt. We'll get to Roosevelt. We can put the pressure on him. Look at, you're an embarrassment to us. Look at those beards. Look at those black clothes. These are the men that showed up because they believed they had an appointment with Roosevelt that day. And they went to the Lincoln Memorial. This was a little, you can't even read it, little excerpt from the New York Times that I found the next day. And it says, Grand Rabbi Horowitz sang prayers for the Jewish dead, for the president, for the government, and for victory in World War II. And then it says, all sang the national anthem, it says in Hebrew. But I'm sure it was in Yiddish, but who cared in those days? And so they assembled on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, and the men in uniform were World War I Jewish veterans in uniform who um, were kind of like an honor guard, and they marched to the White House for their meeting with President Roosevelt. We know from Roosevelt's schedule that day, because we have all those diaries and everything, that on his itinerary for that day, he had nothing. He had nothing. And when, and so they're marching over to see him. They had the greatest hopes of seeing him. He's the one person in the world that could have turned things around. God, in my opinion, was giving him a chance to be a blessing to the Jews, to save two and a half, three and a half, maybe four million lives by the action that he could take and it would not have hurt our war effort at all. When he heard that the Jews were coming, he said, I got to get out of here. I don't want to meet with them. And so he went over to um, um, Andrews Air, I think it was Andrews Air Force Base. It was a bowling Air Force Base, maybe. Maybe. 
because there was something very important for the President of the United States to do. Uh, I think it was some uh, Master Sergeant was having a birthday or is retiring, something that demanded the attention of the President of the United States so he could get out of meeting with these Jews. And so when they arrived, and that's his desk, when they arrived there, um, the, sorry, no one was home. Um, uh, some uh, member of his staff went out and they said, we're so sorry, but the president has been called away. If you'll just give us a piece of paper, we'll make sure he sees it and all that sort of stuff. They were, of course, greatly um, dismayed by that. This is the picture of them on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Now, here's what I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you, because I want to show you that they really weren't alone. I want to show you the Christian leaders that were with them, the heads of denominations, the heads of synods who were there and who were also rebuffed by President uh, Roosevelt that day. And even though it's a long way long time after, you will probably recognize some of those Christian leaders that stood with the Jews on those steps. And there they are. My point is, no one. And now you may begin to understand why Jews are a little suspicious of Christians today who come up and say, we're going to stand with you. When they were needed, there were, look, if there had been two cardinals there, one cardinal, if there had been the head of one denomination, they would have gotten in. But he didn't need their votes. They're a bunch of Orthodox Jews. Who knows if they even vote? Today, by the way, the Orthodox Jews all vote Republican. Thanks a lot, FDR. <laughs> that was tragic. There were no Christians standing with them when they needed it. This is what it says in Proverbs. Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he, meaning God, who weighs the heart, perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay everyone according to what they have done? That's what it says in Proverbs. They were staggering toward death. They were staggering toward death by the millions. The train tracks were never bombed. These people were pleading with Roosevelt and with the Secretary of Defense and all that, bomb Auschwitz. They're killing them there anyway. Bomb it. No, no, we've got to win the war first. We can't really be involved with that. Roosevelt was coming up for his fourth election. And he decided uh, he didn't even need to go uh, to the um, convention. The convention was in Chicago. He was out in San Diego. He said, I don't need to go there. Of course they're going to ask me to run again. And um, so the question came up, who do you want for vice president this time? By the way, sitting in the back seat is Henry Wallace, his former vice president, who he'd already dumped. He said, I'm not having him along. Um, and everybody that was proposed, there was something wrong with them. Uh, they'd cost him votes here or there, something like that. And finally they came up with the name of Harry Truman. And Harry Truman was this farmer from Missouri who got elected senator 
uh, by nobody could understand how, and he got reelected as senator. By the way, when he was running for reelection in Missouri, there was nobody backing him. He drove around by himself in his car. If he'd see a farmer in a field with uh, baling wire all wrapped around his harvester or something, Harry would go through the fence, go out there, lay in the tractor, help him get that out. Harry slept in his car while he was running for Senate. Now, you think today when senators run, I mean, it's millions and millions of dollars. They never sleep in their car. And Harry got reelected. And so somehow... They sort of convinced FDR, well, this is the best thing we could possibly have. FDR didn't even know him. And, but they set, a, they set Harry up, because Harry went to Chicago, pledged to um, nominate Albin Barkley for vice president. And once Harry gave his word, he was insistent on keeping his word. And so he went to Chicago, and people saying, why don't you put yourself up for vice president? Nope, I'm committed to Barkley. Well, FDR got convinced out in San Diego that Truman was the only guy he could have, and he didn't care anyway, because he never utilized his vice presidents. He hardly ever even knew what they were doing. He didn't care about them, and he thought he was going to live forever. So they set up this gimmick that Truman didn't know about. They got Truman up in a, uh, a hotel room in Chicago, you know, cigar-filled smoke and all that stuff, how that used to work. And they kind of kept after him, and he kept insisting, no, I am not going to run as vice president. I'm committed to Alvin Barkley. FDR knew all this. FDR, when he got on the telephone, would holler so loud, he didn't think that his voice would carry, and especially if he's across country, he'd holler so loud they'd have to hold the phone away from their ears, or they would blow it up. Well, so they set up Truman, and the chairman of the Democratic National Committee was in this room, Truman surrounded by all these cigar-smoking guys, and, um, and they call Roosevelt, and Roosevelt says, well, did you get that senator from Missouri lined up to be vice president? You know, and of course they could hear it. And he says, no, sir, you know, he's the orneriest Missouri mule we've ever run into. He's, well, blankety blank blank. If he wants to ruin the Democratic Party in the middle of the war, if he wants to bring us down, we could lose the whole blankety blank war, and I don't know what's the matter with him, and I don't care. And he slams the phone down. Now, this was all set up. Truman didn't know it. And Truman goes, oh, my gosh. If he really felt that way, why didn't he say so before? And no, I can't destroy the Democratic in the middle of the war. And so he got conned into saying, okay, I'll accept and run for vice president. And so he went out, and he ran for vice president. FDR didn't do much. Truman went all over the country, and they got elected. Now, um... Here he's sitting, on, uh, going to uh, be the inauguration, sitting next to Truman, and he's scared to death because he's now, I mean, sitting next to Roosevelt. He's looking at Roosevelt. Said, this man is sick. This guy is really, oh, my gosh. What if he dies? He said, I am the most unprepared person ever to be president. And Roosevelt did nothing to prepare him. During the next 80-some days or whatever it was from the election until then, 
Roosevelt only met with him one time, and that was for breakfast so they could have pictures taken together outside. Truman knew nothing about the war, the aims that were going on. He knew nothing about the atomic bomb that was being um, uh, worked on. He knew nothing, and, and Roosevelt didn't tell him anything. Just kind of shut him out. And Roosevelt went off and did some other stuff. We need you, you know? It was like, I, you know, I was just a little kid when Roosevelt was still in office, and I'd hear things, and our milkman would come in, and he'd get on my uh, grandmother and my mother and r talk about Roosevelt and everything. They'd get all mad because they were Republicans, and, <laughs> and Rudy would really spin them up. And so it's about all I kind of remember about it firsthand. But he went to... Um, I forget where this meeting was. This was one of the big three meetings with Stalin and with um, Churchill and with Roosevelt. The war was starting to wind down, and on his way home, on the boat he was on, they went down towards Saudi Arabia, and they got King Saud. By the way, it wasn't always named Saudi Arabia. Um, it was called Arabia. And the Saud family drove the Hussein family out in this battle. And then they renamed it Saudi Arabia like they've always had it. Well, they didn't. Anyway, King Saud is brought up. He's, he's kind of a, also kind of an invalid like FDR was. And they brought him up and they raised him up onto the ship. And then they brought all these goats and everything. It was unbelievable. And um, FDR was really uh, amazed by this king of Arabia who came to see him. And he wanted to talk to him about at the end of the war about Jews coming into Palestine. And the king, Saud, said, absolutely not. Not one Jew can come into this land and all that kind of stuff. And FDR thought he could cajole him into agreeing to allowing some Jews in. But he realized he couldn't. He said, okay, okay, I'll tell you what. I won't allow any Jews in unless you agree to it, king. And basically, the king said, don't even bother asking. I'll never agree to that. And so he said, okay, we'll leave it like it is. Let's kill a few goats and cook them up here on the ship. And then um, FDR came back home. Well, he wrote a letter in April of 1945 to King Saud, and um, in it, he said everything that they'd agreed to. And he said, don't worry. No Jews are going to get into the land of Palestine unless you agree to it. Basically saying exactly what Saud wanted. Was that a blessing or a curse to the Jews? The war wasn't even over yet. Nobody knew how many Jews were going to remain alive. Well, it was a curse to the Jews. One week later, Roosevelt was dead. Guess who's president? Harry Truman. Truman, who had nothing to do in Washington, he didn't even know. Uh, Roosevelt was down in Warm Springs, Georgia, where he would go because of his polio and everything else, and he was spending time down there. And um, Harry Truman is in Washington, D.C. He'd been a senator. 
So if you're the vice president, you're also the president of the Senate. Now, nobody shows up to play that role unless there's a tie, but he had nothing to do. So every day he'd go over and he'd sit in the Senate as president of the Senate. Five o'clock came, they'd close down the Senate. He'd go down to what they called their school board, and with his buddies, they'd break out the bourbon and the, and the cards, and they'd play cards and drink down there. So Harry's down there playing cards in the afternoon, and he gets a message Get over to the White House right away. So, oh my gosh, the president's come back. And so he runs on over there thinking something really is important because the president's calling him. When he gets there, Mrs. Roosevelt's there and she said, she said, Harry, the president is dead. And Truman was just shocked. And he didn't know what to say, but he said to Mrs. Roosevelt, Mrs. Roosevelt, is there anything I can do for you? And she said, you're the one that's going to need help, knowing how unprepared he was. He saw a couple of newspaper writers there, and he said, boys, if you ever prayed, I need your prayers. If you've ever been on a farm and a load of hay fell on top of your head, I just feel like not only a load of hay, but the sun and the moon and stars just fell on me. And they said, well, find your wife because we got to swear you in as, as the new president. And then they started a search, not for his wife, but for a Bible. They couldn't find a Bible in the White House. The search went on for the longest time. They finally came up with a book. It may have been a Bible. It may not have been. Who knows what it was? But they were swearing him in on it. That was the only time they'd appeared together after the election. And it was just for breakfast. Take the pictures, boys. And uh, what's your name? Harry. Yeah. See you, Harry. Thanks for dropping in. Nothing to do. Roosevelt was dead. Cerebral, cerebral hemorrhage proves fatal. Roosevelt's dead. Truman takes oath. By the way, if you saw pictures of um, FDR during those last few years, and you looked at it and you didn't know his age, you'd say, this guy is 95. This guy is 100 years. I mean, he looked terrible. He was 63 years of age when he died. It's no wonder how shocked Truman was when he saw him <laughs> up close and realized he's not going to live very long. Um, well, this picture, I wish you could really see the detail of it. All those people surrounding Harry Truman are not fans of Harry Truman. They hated Harry Truman. They had served Roosevelt for years. They were his lackeys. They loved him. He was an aristocrat and all this. And who is this? This farmer from Missouri. They're probably looking at his shoes, see if he had horse manure on them. And... Um, they looked down on him. You can read, you can go to the Truman Library, and you can read some of the things that were sent to him by these people who had so faithfully served Roosevelt. And I'm, I'm overdoing it here, but they'd say, um, Dear Mr. President, we know you don't really understand the issue, but here's what you should say. These are exact words. Don't say anything more than this. I mean, it was stuff like he's a little fifth grader, and, and they were treating him like this, and they treated him that way for a long time. He didn't get rid of most of them. He kept them uh, in place. But they, you, you can, can see, see some of them. They were looking down their nose like he's going to be in FDR's chair. Don't let him sit in that chair. Get another chair. Um, it, it was unbelievable how badly he was treated. Um, and there he's being sworn in. Now, what about his background? 
Why did God take somebody like this? You know what? He never went to college. He's the last president who never attended college. And um, <laughs> maybe that's a good point there. This is mom and dad. His dad was a horse trader and a mule trader. And um, his mom uh, came from a farm family. And uh, her father had a big farm out in Grandview, uh, Missouri. You can go and visit what's left of it. This was little Harry. And little Harry had bad eyesight, so he had to wear glasses. And because they were expensive, they didn't allow him to play rough-and-tumble sports and do that sort of stuff. So his mom taught him to play the piano, and he, at a very young age, was a voracious reader. And when, they were, when he was about six years old, his mother insisted, he's, he's got to go to a real school. Because that school out there in the country was not a good school. And so she insisted, and they left the farm, and they moved to Independence, Missouri. And they moved into a house that I believe God had that house reserved for them. Because next door was an Orthodox Jewish family. Probably, I can't figure it out, probably the only one in Independence, Missouri in those days. Now... What's that about? I've read interviews with the daughter that lived in that, was, was in that family. And she says, little Harry was in our house all the time. He was always coming over. We loved him. His best friend was my brother Abe. And you know what? His parents did not say to him, don't you go over to those Jews. Don't be in that house next door. You know, it smells funny over there. Now, Harry, quit playing over there. You can go other places. No, they didn't. As a matter of fact, the daughter of that family said Harry was our Shabbos Goy. If you know what Shabbos Goy is, Saturday is Shabbat in Hebrew, but in Yiddish, it's Shabbos. And goy is, if you're a Gentile, you're a goy. Okay? It's, it's a word. Uh, it means Gentile. And plural is goyim. So, Harry was a Shabbos goy. It means it's a Gentile you'll bring in who will do things on Sabbath day that they can't do, like making fire. The Bible says you don't make fire on Saturday. So a Shabbos Goy comes in and he would light the stove, he would light the gas lamps, he would do those things so that they could remain, so they could do things that were kosher and not do things that weren't. So Harry was a Shabbos Goy. Now, his parents could have said, don't go over there with those people. They're different. They're funny. They're, they didn't. Praise God they didn't. They allowed Harry to be comfortable, and those Jews loved him. And you know what? It was planting a little seed in his heart. Because later on, maybe 50-some years later, God was going to have that seed grow in such a way that he was going to be a blessing not only to the Jews, but to our nation as well. And it started there. They could have stomped on that seed and killed it right there and turned him in. Because those were the days. We're talking about 1890s, 1900. Um, being anti-Semitic and talking that way was the way everybody did. And you're out on the frontier in Independence, Missouri in those days. And yet Harry 
it, you know, was, it, was, it was very different. Harry went to high school, and he was, a, he was an outstanding student. He wanted to be an army officer, but because of his vision, he couldn't go to West Point. And so he never he didn't go to college at all. And he got a couple of jobs in Kansas City as a, working at a bank, working for a railroad, doing clerical kind of things. He was very good at that, but he was reading all the time about things that interested him. At the same time, there was another little boy whose parents had come from Europe, and he was born in one of the Jewish tenements um, in uh, New York City. And they said, this is no place to raise a kid. Let's go to the Wild West. And they went to the Wild West, which was Kansas City. And so they moved out there, and that's not really him, but it was a little boy about that age, and he started peddling newspapers and doing those kind of things. And actually, he got a job working um, in a clothing store. So he got to know about shirts and stuff, and he ran into Harry Truman. And they made an acquaintance when they were both uh, somewhere around 17, 18 years old. And this little Jewish boy was named Eddie Jacobson. Now, if Harry, if that seed had been tromped on and saying, don't hang around with Jews, you know, all that kind of stuff, he probably never would have struck up a relationship with this little Jewish boy. Now, I don't know why I'm going backwards here. Maybe I'm not. Harry's dad had to go back and take care of the family farm for his father-in-law. And he was about to lose the farm, and he insisted on his two boys coming home. Harry coming home from Kansas City, and Harry's brother had to come back to work on the farm. For the next 19 years, Harry got acquainted with the south end of a couple of mules heading north. This is the only picture we know of Harry Truman on the farm. And he wasn't a happy farmer. He had this girl back in Independence, Missouri that he liked since he went, um, uh, met her in Sunday school when they were about five years old. And all of his life, he's trying to get her to marry him. And because of her mother, she couldn't really have anything to do with him. But he wrote many letters to Bess, and every chance he got, he'd leave the farm and go to Independence to see her. But it looked like it was all um, a lost cause. Um, But... He still had that dream about being an officer in the Army. And although he couldn't go to West Point, he joined the National Guard. And because he was a bright guy, he became a lieutenant. And lo and behold, 1917, World War I starts. And Harry's unit is getting mobilized to go to France. And um, that's his brother with a couple of good-looking Missouri mules. And I don't know why Harry was plowing with horses, but anyway, I can't explain that. So in, in 1917 and 1918, the unit was being formed, and it was a artillery battery, Battery B, um, out of Kansas City, and they had to go to Oklahoma to um, learn how to shoot their, um, their artillery. And while they're down there, Harry gets reacquainted with that 
Jewish boy, Eddie Jacobson. Eddie was a private, Harry was a lieutenant. Now, one thing that goes on in the military, if you're an officer, you don't pal around with the enlisted. Why? It's not because they're any different or anything, but someday I may have to say to Corporal Bill, we got to take that hill and you take your squad and go do it. If Bill is such a buddy of mine and I know somebody's going to get killed, I'll overlook him and I'll go look for this guy back here. <laughs> I'm sorry. Cliff, drop, drop in sometime, drop over sometime, you know, something like that. Cliff, I want you to go because, you know, Bill's got a wife and kids and all that. So you can't do that. So enlisted and officers are not chums and they're not buddies. But Harry and Eddie said, hey, you know what? Why don't we open a canteen? Why don't we sell pop and, and coffee and donuts to the troops? And then any profit that we make, we'll take it and we'll spend it on baseball bats and baseballs and footballs for our unit. This is still how PXs work today. Any profit goes back into the funds. And so they did that. And they hit it off really well. And you can read Harry's letters to his girlfriend saying, I got a crackerjack Jew and we are working together. <laughs> and, um, and his name's Eddie. And then so when they got done in Oklahoma, they went to France. Their unit went to France. And both of them... Uh, both of them acquitted themselves very well in combat. They were terrific together. When they came back to Kansas City, they were demobilized. The unit was demobilized. Harry did not want to go back to the farm. He'd seen Paris. <laughs> Eddie did not, he didn't know what to do, and so they said to each other, we really hit it off, didn't we, when we worked together in that canteen? Why don't we open a haberdashery? And they opened a haberdashery in downtown Kansas City, and uh, that's a picture of it there on the left, and they sold shirts and ties and, and little clothing items, and all the boys from Battery B would come in, and they'd hang around there, and they'd buy a shoelace now and then and stuff like that, but they were doing all right until a depression hit. And when that depression hit, they were overstocked with stuff and everything else, and they went bankrupt. Now, usually, when partners go bankrupt, there's lawsuits. You know, you didn't pay the insurance, and you didn't do the advertising, and where were you, and all that sort of stuff. That didn't happen with this hard-shell Baptist, as Harry described himself, or this Jewish boy. They remained good friends. And they remain good friends for a long period of time, and that's uh, save your money, everything is a closeout sale. Truman and Jacobson went bust. Now, Harry Truman, because of some people that were in his unit, they had some ties to politicians in Kansas City. And Harry Truman ended up being elected as a judge, which really was a county commissioner uh, in those days. And Eddie Jacobson went on the road selling shirts and ties that they had left over, knocking on doors and doing that. But they remained close friends. By this time, Harry Truman married Bess, and Harry never owned a home, and the house they lived in was owned by Bess's mother. Bess's mother's rule was a Jew will never be in this house. 
So Eddie Jacobson never got in that house. Once a week, though, Harry would leave the house, go over to Eddie's, have dinner with him. They'd go out, they'd play cards, they'd drink, they'd do kind of things that those guys did together, and they remained close friends throughout the years. One of the things then, and that's them years later, still the closest of friends. Well, um, I think we already went through this. When Harry, well, Harry got elected as a senator. No one thought he could even run for Senate, but he did, and he got elected, went to Washington, served very honorably during World War II, headed up investigations of companies that were really doing bad things. I mean, he was a hammer. And um, anyway, he gets elected, and this is Eddie Jacobson. Now, Eddie opened another haberdashery store called Westport Men's Clothing. And um, Harry goes off to Washington, and Harry ends up being the president. And I had a picture somewhere here, well, anyway, I don't know what happened to it, of Harry and Eddie um, after Harry became president of meeting in, in, in the shop. And so they... Eddie was the only guy that had carte blanche who could walk into the Oval Office any time he wanted to because they were such old friends. He could get in there without an appointment. If he happened to be in Washington, he'd go in and see his buddy Harry. One of the things that came up was that the um, concentration camps were opened. Eisenhower found the first, as soon as he heard there was this camp that was opened with these dead bodies in it and these Jews, he got over there as quick as he could. And when he's in there somewhere, I have a picture of it, I don't know if I've got it up here or not, Eisenhower had this great smile, Ike's smile. This is one of the few pictures you would ever see of Eisenhower with his jaw locked. He was so upset and so mad when he went into this concentration camp, he thought it was the only one. There were bodies stacked up like cordwood, and they were rotting because the German soldiers had fled from there. The Jews that were still alive were in these pajamas. They were wandering around. I mean, some of them for years had been in this situation. They couldn't even believe that they were still alive. When Eisenhower got there and saw what he saw and smelled what he smelled, he was livid. And he said, you get every photographer in the army that's around here. I want everything documented because someday some SOB is going to say this never happened. He thought it was the only camp in Germany, not realizing there were hundreds of camps like this. And this wasn't even the death camps. These were camps where they just worked them to death. This wasn't Auschwitz, where they were killing them in an industrial uh, motive. And he said, I want every soldier, because the war was still going on. They were chasing the Germans as they were pulling back. He said, every soldier in this area, I want them to come through here. If only for five minutes, they've got to see that this is what we were fighting against. He was so upset by it, not realizing there were hundreds more uh, exactly like this all over Germany. Because today, most of the evidence we have of what the Nazis did to the Jews came from the sector where Eisenhower was. He had everything documented. 
the other Europe was divided up after the war between the British, the French, the Americans, and the Russians. And there were death camps in the in the um, uh, Russian sector, in the um, British sector. Very little evidence comes from that. It may be one of the reasons that God blessed Eisenhower later and made him president because of what he did at that moment. His reaction was right. It was a warning to the world of what the, what the world was doing to the Jews. Anyway, the next three years, Truman was president. One of the questions coming up was, what about the British who are about to leave Palestine? They had a British mandate, and they were about to pull out. Eisenhower, I mean, I'm sorry, Truman, publicized this, and he sent a committee to Europe in the British sector. They were holding survivors of the death camps many times in the same camps that they'd been held in by the Nazis because they didn't want them wandering around Europe. There was no place for them to go home. They couldn't go back to Poland. Some of the survivors went back to Poland to try to reclaim their homes, and they were murdered in the streets. The Jews knew there was only one place for them to go, and that was to Palestine. And the British adamantly refused. Hitler tried to do it quietly. They refused. He went public with it. He set committees over there. And he demanded that 100,000 survivors be allowed immediately to go to Palestine. And the British absolutely refused. By May of 1948, the British were going to leave. But what to do about the state of Palestine? And it was all kinds of problems with it. Truman really tried to be an honest broker. He brought in Arabs, and he said, I can't even deal with them. They won't, they won't have one word said about Jews going to Palestine. He said, I brought in the Jewish representatives in the United States. Many of them did not want a state of Israel because they thought they were so assimilated in the United States that they would be accused of dual um, loyalty. And so they didn't want to see a state of Israel. There were many Jews in the United States who demanded a state of Israel. One rabbi in Truman's office came up and slammed his desk and started telling Truman what to do. And Truman really was bothered by that. Um, finally, by 1948, Truman was ready to wash his hands of the whole mess. No matter what he did, somebody would stab him in the back on it. No matter what decision he would make in regards to Israel, they'd go out and they'd twist it when it got in the press. Truman was going to run for election as president, but his, his approval rating was going into the dumps. And... Um, and much of it had to do with this. When he went to his, um, for instance, this is Clark Clifford. Clark Cl Clifford later became a very famous lawyer. He was a very young man in Truman's uh, administration, one of his assistants. Clark Clifford was, the one, was one of the very few people on his staff who was for recognizing the state of Israel, for pushing it. Over here is General Marshall. General Marshall was the most 
revered person in the United States in those days. Harry Truman loved him. When he retired as the chief of staff of running the army during the war, Truman twisted his arm to become the secretary of state, and he was a good man. But when it came down to the issue of Israel, he was opposed to it for a lot of reasons. He said, if we recognize Israel, we will lose all the Arabs, we'll lose all the oil. And besides, they'll be wiped out as soon as they proclaim a state. We can't do it. And over the months, it just got bigger and bigger. Everybody in the administration was against recognizing the state of Israel. Um, and they had a lot of squabbles over this. Meanwhile, Eddie Jacobson sitting out in Kansas City, he didn't know hardly anything about the issue of Israel. He was Jewish, but he wasn't very involved in the whole thing. And some Jewish leaders in New York said, we are in big trouble. If the President Truman does not recognize the state of Israel, then we'll have no support anywhere in the world. How can we get to Truman? Because basically Truman had a sign on his door, no more talk about Israel. I don't want to hear one more thing about the Jews. He was so tired of the whole thing. And these two leaders of leader, Jewish leaders in New York said, what are we going to do? And one guy said, you know, I was just in Kansas City and, and we honored some guy who, is, uh, who knows Truman. I can't remember what his name is. It's something like Jake or Johnson or something. And he said, get some quarters. And they got changed together in New York City, and they start calling these names in the phone book in Kansas City. Do you know the president? No, and what are you waking me up for? Click. And, all, and they're running out of change. And finally, they try one other guy named Jacobson. So, Jacobson, do you know President Trump? Of course I do. Oh, you're the guy we want to hear. You've got to do a favor. You've got to ask the president, hold it. He's been a friend of mine all my life because I don't ask favors of the president of the United States. Listen, you're a Jew, aren't you, Jacobson? Well, yes, I am. Then you've got to know how important it is that we can get to the president of the United States. He said, I don't know anything about this. He said, you better get smart quick. Get on an airplane and come to New York. So Eddie Jacobson dug into his change that he had, bought a ticket, flew to New York, and they spent a couple of days with him, bringing him up to speed. Eddie Jacobson was a very bright guy. And they told him how important it was that the United States recognize the state of Israel. Eddie went back home. He wrote letters to Truman. Truman said, thanks a lot, Eddie, but um, look, it's out of my hands. I'm turning it over to the UN. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm going on vacation. And so on Saturday, the 13th of March, Eddie again goes in and robs his daughter's piggy bank to get enough money to buy an airplane ticket and fly to Washington, D.C. Truman did not know he was coming. He flies into Washington, and he heads over to the White House. And he's walking into the Oval Office, and he's stopped by Truman's chief of staff, and he said, Mr. Jacobson, I know why you're here. For God's sake, don't talk to the chief about Israel or the Jews. His blood pressure's already up to here. It'll go through the roof. Don't, I beg of you, don't do it. Eddie basically thought, 
I'm on a mission from God. And he walked past him. And he came into the Oval Office. This is kind of hokey. I'm glad you can't see it very well. And Harry, look, look, the reason I know this is I was at the Truman Library, and I have Eddie Jacobson's handwritten notes about how this conversation went. He wrote HST, Harry S. Truman said, I said, Harry said, all that sort of stuff. So it's as close as anybody can get to what actually took place. He walks into the office, Truman is sitting at his desk, and he sees Harry, and he looks up. <laughs> see? See the nice smile. And he goes... I know, it's a little hokey, but it's the best I can do. There, were n there wasn't any films there. <laughs> and he says, Eddie, oh, how great of you to come in. Oh, my gosh, you don't know what a snake pit Washington is. Everything I do, somebody stabs me in the back. I can't do anything. Oh, I'm so glad to see you. How's the weather out there in Kansas City? Have the farmer's been able to get in the fields. I know you were getting a lot of rain. And how's your daughter? How's um, Bluma, I think was the wife's name. He's asking all this stuff, and it's go Harry and Eddie and Harry and Eddie, and they're having a great time. And then... <laughs> Eddie says, Mr. President, and right away, Truman stiffens up, and he says, Mr. President, I wish you would reconsider regarding Palestine, and Truman went through the ceiling. He said, I can't even say all the things he said, but basically he said, I am not going to discuss this about the Jews. You don't know what went on. You don't know what these blankety-blank Jews did and how that one no-good blankety-blank rabbi hit the president's desk and was telling the president what to do. And he's going on, and Eddie wrote, If I didn't know Harry as the best friend in my whole life, I would have thought he was the biggest anti-Semite there ever was by the terrible things he was saying about Jews. And he said, the tears welled up in my eyes, and I realized there was no talking him out of this, that his position was so set. He was a Missouri mule, and he was digging in. And then he said, I saw it. I didn't know what to do. I thought, this is the end of our lifelong friendship. And I walked over to that statue, which is there, and it's a man on horseback. And he said, and I put my hand on that statue. No more, Mr. President. I said, Harry, you listen to me. You had a hero. All the time we had our store together, you were in the back room reading about Andrew Jackson. You're probably the best read man about Andrew Jackson in the whole country. He's your hero. He was such a hero to you that when you were the county commissioner, you built a statue to Andrew Jackson, and it's still there today in Independence. You can see it. And this was a little model of it. Andrew Jackson is your hero. Well, Harry, I've got a hero, too. And I never met him. And his name is Chaim Weissman. Chaim Weissman, I think, is the greatest Jew in the world. I've never met him. 
But when he heard that you had shut down on Israel and that you were turning it over to the U.N., he got on a steamship and he came to the United States. And you know this. He's been waiting in New York City in a hospital bed in a hotel there wanting to see you for just five minutes, and you refused to see him because some rabbi slammed his hand down on your desk. I thought you were a bigger man than that. I thought you had a thicker hide than that, that you would turn away this man who is in his 70s, he's going blind, he's the leader of the Jews in the world, and you won't see him for even five minutes. And he said, Truman looked at him and got all red and sat down at his chair and spun around and looked out the window and he said I don't know how long it lasted and I'm looking at the back side of Truman's head it could have been five minutes it could have been 20 minutes and I was so shaken by what I had said and by what he had said that I didn't know and then I felt something was happening and Truman turned around Whoops, okay, that's the statue in Independence there, but that's the model of it. And this is Heim Weitzman, the one that Eddie wanted to get in to see the president. And Truman looked around and he looked at me through those thick glasses of his and he said the kindest words ever that I heard from his lips. He looked at me and he said, you ball-headed SOB, you win. I'll see him. <laughs> and he didn't use the letters, you know. <laughs> and he did. And on the 18th of March, they snuck Heim Weissman in the back door for a five-minute meeting, which ended up 45 minutes. And Heim Weissman got to Harry Truman's heart. And Heim Weissman was soft-spoken. And he had this Polish accent. And when he got to Harry, he explained to him the importance of a land for the Jews and how Jews had been killed all over the world. And there was only one place where they could be at home and how important it would be if Harry Truman would understand this. And he turned Harry's heart over. And Harry said... I will recognize the state of Israel if they declare it. And he was so moved by Heim Weitzman, but only because there was a Jew that had been a lifelong friend of his, and God used him to open the door, and Weitzman got in, and Truman's heart was changed. I won't bore you with the rest of the story, but the next day in the newspaper, it said exactly the opposite, because... The State Department went to the U.N. and said, we are reconsidering and um, we're going to turn it over to the U.N. and all this. It was exactly the opposite of what Truman had promised. And Truman read it in the paper and you can read what he wrote in his diary. He said, I've never been so double-crossed in my life. The old man, meaning Weissman, will think I'm the biggest blankety-blank liar the world's ever seen. What am I going to do about this? When Eddie Jacobson read it in the papers eddie was so sickened by what it said that he went to bed for two days heim weissman called him he said eddie don't worry i think god's going to work things out 
Don't take it so personal. That's not what Truman told me. We'll see if he can work it out. Truman couldn't go public and say my State Department did exactly the opposite of what I wanted done because it would have made the whole government look so weak. But when uh, the time came... By the way, Heim Weitzman was such, such an unusual character. You know, he did not represent the Jewish world. There was nobody behind him. But he carried himself in such a way that people thought he represented the Jews all over the world. He wasn't a fraud. He did his very best. He played his role. And as a matter of fact, after Israel became a state, he was named the first president of Israel. He was... Uh, he was a tremendous chemist. Um, well, I won't go into all that. There's such a great story there. But um, anyway, he got to Harry Truman. These two men got together, and God did some wonderful things. Um, now, what was going on in Israel? In Israel, when they heard that Truman would not recognize the state of Israel, they were, they were in a panic. But David Ben-Gurion said, it doesn't matter. We have waited 2,000 years to again have a state. We've got to go ahead with it. But all of his advisors were saying, don't do it. We can't do it. If we just go out on a limb like this and the United States doesn't recognize us, what are we going to do? And then the word got through. It sounded like Truman might recognize them. So they said, okay, get that building. That building was an art museum. And they said, this is top secret. We've got to, we, the war is almost starting. Arabs, five Arab armies were lined up waiting for the British to leave at midnight. And, and they waited there, but there were already gangs of Arabs in the country already fighting. And so Ben-Gurion said, tomorrow is Friday, and at sundown, Shabbos starts. So we've got to do this before the Sabbath day starts. And he said, secretly, we will invite about 200 people. And they wrote out invitations, and they had them delivered by messenger. Only 200 people because, actually, it started that day, the Egyptians were bombing Tel Aviv. And if all the leaders of the Jews were in one building, so... They swore everybody to secrecy. They took the invitations directly to their homes. They swarmed to secrecy.